If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Today on Soundtrack Alley Spotlight, I've got Lucas Cantor on with me as we discuss Star Trek The Next Generation's episode, The Best of Both Worlds. We'll talk about the cast, the background on the film, the great interaction of Ron Jones and his work on the episode, and so much more. And it all starts now. Hello, I'm Randy Andrews. Today I've got Lucas Cantor with me. Lucas, it's good to have you on my show. My pleasure to be here. Um, Lucas, uh, this episode with Best of Both Worlds is pretty monumental. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, of course, yeah. Oh, well, I was just going to say that the, I think it's important to let people know the genesis of this episode was that you were interviewing me for um, another one of my projects called Cannon Busters, and we just kind of got down a rabbit hole of Star Trek Mm-hmm. stuff and decided well we should just do a whole episode about this because yeah. um, it is sort of a secret passion of mine um, not that I'm secretive about it but it just doesn't figure into my daily life as much as um, some of the other you know stuff that I do but uh, Star Trek is something that I've been into since I was since I was a very little kid since TNG came out really yeah yeah the first experience I had with Star Trek Next Generation was uh, watching it as reruns on the Fox Network um at 10 30 at night mm. and it would run monday through friday it wouldn't air on the weekends for some reason but it would go monday through friday and it would be every single night a different episode and it was actually pretty sequential like they actually kept up with saying okay here's season one here's season two so i like that, I thought that yeah i remember good. I remember when that was uh, when that was on. I watched that as well. I think TNG is probably the one that I've watched the most, mm-hmm. um, and Voyager might be second. It is for me. <laughs> it is for me. Uh, did you hear that Rene Aubrey-Joie died? No. Yeah, Odo. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. 
No. Oh, that's that's what did he? How did he die? Uh, you know, the report never said. So I don't know if it was cancer or what. So. Oh man, you know, I met him actually. Couldn't have been more than two years ago, three years ago. Oh, wow. Well, I've uh, we have some mutual friends. Um, I live in Hollywood, so you know, mm-hmm. running into actors is just a thing that happens. And um, we have some mutual friends, and uh, it was you know somebody's engagement party or something that we we were both friends with. And uh, and yeah, I met him and I talked to him for for quite a while actually. I I, I tried and failed not to totally geek out on him, <laughs> but I think I was more or less normal. Um, but yeah, he was a super nice, like couldn't have been a nicer guy. was really happy to talk about deep space nine and just talk about acting in general. And, uh, I'm sad to hear of his passing cause he was a really good, really good dude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so making that a segue, were there any episodes of deep space nine that included the Borg? That's a good question. I, I have a vague memory of a Borg being on deep space nine. But am I making that up? Because well, the, it didn't the pilot have wait? Didn't the pilot start with Wolf Three Five Nine? Yeah. So that's one, I guess. Yeah, and I think that was a major part of the series. That's why Deep Space Nine became so ingrained in the Star Trek universe because it was a standing point for a wormhole to make sure that even things like the Borg wouldn't come through. Because wasn't it to the Delta Quadrant? Yeah, the wormhole did go. To, it did go to the Delta Quadrant, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess that was the that was the the outpost, the first outpost. Um, and did Deep Space Nine get? Um, I, I, did Deep Space Nine get destroyed in uh, in First Contact? Like, I, I don't I don't think it did visually, but I I, I thought I remembered hearing that I, under attack. Maybe not. I don't think so. Um, I think it was just, you know, it didn't really go, (laughs) it didn't go deep into like what stations or anything had been destroyed because of the Borg entering uh, Sector 1 or Zero One. Yeah, Zero Zero One. I was, I I remember seeing that movie and just, I don't know, I think that was, that was one of my favorite ones. That was one of the best Mm -hmm. ones. And, uh, you know, you really, you can't beat James Cromwell as an mm-hmm. actor. No. It's so fantastic. Yeah. Except from Cochran. Um, yeah. yeah, it was uh, super I, cool. Because, like, you know, when you think about the Borg and how many times they showed up, who introduced the, the Enterprise to the Borg, which was Q. And that just kind of spiraled everything into focus for what was happening. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting philosophical point in the Star Trek universe that it was essentially a deity that intervened and changed the path of human history completely. Yeah. Um, because the, the, the Federation wouldn't have encountered the Borg for probably another several generations. Mm-hmm. Or I guess uh, Voyager would have, but that, that would have been about it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Q just really changed, changed that and put the Federation on a, on a bit of a darker path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it did kind of give the Federation a uh, formidable foe for a mm-hmm. while. And, I mean, uh, you had sent me notes regarding the different uh, episodes or different 
times that a Borg would show up. And it was several times within TNG, but I think Voyager takes the cake on Borg episodes. Oh, yeah, by far. I mean, by a factor of three, I think. Uh, Yeah. There were, let me get that. Let me get that up because I had a lot of fun putting that together. I uh, I found the list. Uh, some someone else made the list, but uh, I actually went through and watched all of them. Oh, nice. Uh, and um, yeah, so it looks like there's four appearances in the Next Generation, two of which were double episodes, so we can call that six. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Voyager, it's a pretty much every season finale. Uh, Season finale of three, five, and six were both oh, wow. double episodes, including the Borg. Yeah. Um, and then there's uh, one, two, three, four, five. So a total of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve episodes with the Borg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those were all, I believe, scored by Jay Chataway. Um, oh, nice. So I think he did that whole series, uh, except for uh, Unity, which was the first Borg episode, um, and that was scored by David Bell. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I also put these episodes in chronological order as they occurred in uh, Federation time, which is not mm-hmm. how, how they always aired. But uh, the first one being Q Who, the second one being Best of Both Worlds, um, and moving on to the final Voyager episode, Endgame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, the, um, the, uh, the most interesting ones to me, the most interesting, I think probably the Voyager equivalent of the Best of Both Worlds being like, the seminal episode that was a double episode that was really interesting was Scorpion, mm-hmm. um, which is the one with uh, Species 8472. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that, uh, that, uh, that episode also changed some television, too, because they incorporated even more, like, it had been the most expensive CGI character they had constructed for the series. Species eight four seven two was yeah at the time <laughs> That's pretty at funny. the time yeah but see we're talking I think it was nineteen ninety six or ninety seven it looks as good as the original Star Wars trail like the first Star Wars uh, yeah you know the um the the, the the second trilogy but that was chronologically the first yeah um I guess it looks about as good as that which was the cutting edge technology at the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, to, to modernize, you kind of, you love Star Trek, so you forgive the look of it in some cases. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was TV. It wasn't, you know, it yeah. wasn't a movie. It was, but they were trying to go for a bigger budget for that show. So that I thought that was kind of cool. Um, yeah, you know, thinking about a lot of the iconic scenes for best of both worlds and how it's kind of eerie at the beginning because you're not really sure what's going on and it's they they land on this planet and you you see like this giant hole in the ground and Mm -hmm. there's nothing there it's like technology was completely stolen and ripped away and uh i thought it was interesting too flipping forward to um i believe it's at the end of the first episode and uh picard who's lacutus at this point it's the catchphrase resistance is futile was the first time that it was ever used oh wow 
I didn't realize that uh, that um, Patrick Short had that line first. Yeah, yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah, because in uh, Q-Who, the Borg never spoke, like, mm-hmm. at all. And it wasn't until, or, well, no, they didn't speak. They, they hadn't come up with a speech for the Borg quite yet, probably because they had never encountered humans before. Hmm. And then... Well, yeah, I guess they wouldn't have... Um... They wouldn't have encountered any real. Well, I guess they'd encountered Guinan's race, mm-hmm. so they would have like. So they would be in the universal translator. Is my point? In yeah. Theory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or we'd at least the Federation would at least have had a common language with them. Yeah. Yeah. But mm-hmm. yeah, this was the first time that they actually had that like uh, chorus um, drone like voice saying resistance is futile and yeah, I, super cool. we will add your uh uniqueness we will add your and, distinctiveness to our own yeah yeah exactly um so what do you like most about best of both worlds huh well i like that it's um it's very cinematic in scope i mean it really is kind of just a star trek movie Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, with a, with a slightly smaller budget, I think the, um, I think Ron's, Ron Jones's score for it is, is pretty amazing. And that's, that's what, that's sort of the focus of this podcast, right? Is the music of Star Trek and Ron Jones in particular. Uh, and he's like, Ron is, I think Ron is one of the most underrated composers in Hollywood. And I say that, I mean, he's had a fantastic career and he's done mm-hmm. a lot of really amazing things. And I think in a lot of ways he has been very highly rated, but I think that he is still underrated. I, I, I think the same thing about Alan Silvestri. I think Alan Silvestri has had a miraculous career and mm-hmm. has done amazing things, but I think he's one of the greatest composers living and his music will be heard in a hundred years, you know? Um, and uh, I don't know if he quite gets that enough credit. You know, I don't, I don't know if he gets the credit that he deserves. I think Ron Jones is in that boat as well. And I, I didn't really appreciate the score of the next generation I don't think um, until I really revisited this episode and listened to these cues, mm-hmm. um, I always liked it. It always kind of worked, but I, I never realized how intricate and how musical it was, which is, which is Ron's hallmark. Mm-hmm. But one of his geniuses is being um, like John Williams being musical and lyrical, but also totally transparent to dialogue uh, and really just helping tell the story but using beautiful music to tell the story. Never, never really oh, yeah. feeling the scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I liked some of your notes in regard. I mean, like, your notes were amazing, too. Uh, but you brought up that he's up there with John Williams. And like you mentioned, Alan Silvestri, Mark Isham, and his score to Family Guy. I didn't realize he scored Family Guy. Yeah, so Ron Jones traded off with, um, I think it was Jim McNeely. Uh, no, it's, uh, anyway, Ron Jones scored every other episode of Family Guy for okay. the first 11 or 12 seasons. Um, and also just by way of a slight correction, because he is um, uh, a friend of the family and my wife's boss, pronounced Mark Isham. Oh, okay. All right. It's a common mistake. Even people who know him do it, but uh, okay. it's Isham. Um, and, uh, 
but yeah, the Ron score to Family Guy is Family Guy is really more jazzy, I guess, uh, and that's I think that's that's the aesthetic. I mean, uh, Seth MacFarlane is I think his musical vernacular probably is pretty much exactly the blend between big band crooner swing and Star Trek score. I think that's pretty <laughs> much what he grew up on. And yeah. Ron Jones was just a, was a perfect choice for that. Um, and I've been to, I went to two or three uh, family guy scoring sessions as a guest with Ron. Uh, they were both at, they were all at Fox at Fox studios and Ron would host uh, a talk an hour before. So any of the guests who are usually young composers were welcome to come and just hear him talk about the score and talk about what they were about to hear. And um, the other thing that Ron used to do, he, he doesn't live in Hollywood anymore. He now lives up um, in Washington state where he has a studio where you can go rent by the week. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, what he used to do when he lived in Hollywood, uh, he hosted something called the Ravel study group, which was a bunch of, a bunch of film composers would get together once a week and just dissect a score. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it would be, you know, two days on, or sometimes it would be two hours on just four bars of writing. <laughs> and they, and they would pick a score and start at the beginning and get to the end. Sometimes it took six months to do it. Oh, wow. uh, but, um, you know, all this to say that Ron is, uh, a musician of the highest caliber and a lifelong learner and someone who was studying is still, I'm sure studying his craft as intently as, as he was as a young man. Um, and his music reflects that. And he's also one of the reasons that television music is cool now. Because, oh, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't cool to be a TV composer in 1990. Um, and you could mail it in to some degree, and nobody <laughs> really cared. Yeah. But uh, Ron really made these scores come alive. Mm-hmm. And I think in so many ways uh best of both worlds brought up like the uh i mean sure you got a little bit of some synth music to it but you could feel like this orchestral element to the score and they i mean ron jones pulled out all the stops you know Mm -hmm. really to bring out like this almost cinematic movie theater experience but it was for a tv show Mm -hmm. and i think it was innovative it was unlike anything that had been done before i think possibly in the history of certain television at the time because i don't think they were doing cliffhanger episodes on other shows were they yeah, the cliffhanger episode has been around for a real long time. Okay, uh, okay. but it was it was um, it was it did fall out of favor because it was considered very kind of hacky. Mm. And what often would happen is, um, if you think back to the the sort of like action, you know what what Star Trek and and um, and Indiana Jones were born out of is these sort of hero western um, like n- not newsreel but um, just cinematic uh, these shorts that would play before films right Mm -hmm. and they were usually these uh you know they were about some hero who was always good and um and would uh you know would always do the right thing and they would always end on a cliffhanger where 
the you know the wagon was going over the cliff and the hero was in the wagon you didn't know how he was going to be saved and then you would find out in the next episode that he actually jumped out of the wagon before it went over the cliff yeah um and so they would do these things but they were just they were kind of hacky and um the best of both worlds i i don't know if it was by any means the first but one of the things that it did that i think is something that keeps the fans coming back to star trek is it didn't there, there wasn't any sneaky it, it you know, it ended on a cliffhanger that was real and they really got out of that actual situation. Yeah. You know, so there wasn't any trickery. There wasn't any sleight of hand. No. At the end of the episode, Picard was a Borg. And at the beginning of the next episode, Picard was still a Borg. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, they, and they figured it out. So, so I think it was, uh, it was innovative um, in that way. If not innovative, at least true to the, um, yeah, to the genre. Yeah. Yeah, but for, I mean, it had never been done with Star Trek before. Let me put mm-hmm. it that way. Because they had, I mean, even the original series had never done a cliffhanger episode like that. Like, I mean, they probably did, I mean, they did sequel episodes of, like, you had the same character in, the, in another episode. You know, like Harry Mudd from the original mm-hmm. series. You know, you had <laughs> Harry Mudd show up a couple times. But, uh and then it was also innovative for Star Trek to do a character in a TV series episode and then bring back that character into a movie. And we're talking, of course, is Wrath of Khan. Yeah. And I yeah, mean, was that Khan in two episodes or he was only in one, just one in the movie. He yeah. was only in one. Uh, right. He was in uh, Space Seed. That's what mm-hmm. it was called. And I mean, even though it didn't seem like he was that important of a character, we realize how important he was with Star Trek Two. Well, he was. That's a great point, actually, because um, Khan was really kind of the perfect foil for Kirk in a lot of ways. They were both alpha males. They were both physically strong. They were both great leaders. They both inspired their followers uh, or their crew to to do amazing things. Um, in they were both phenomenal over actors <laughs> yeah <laughs> they were they were just i mean is the only it was they were perfect foils for each other and in the same way the federation um the, the borg are the perfect foil for the federation because they are the exact you know in the same way that they're, they're very similar in a lot of ways that the borg are explorers the borg want to better themselves the borg want to push the limits of their own knowledge and um and there's no sign that they're that they would stop until they hit a natural barrier, which is how, which is how the Federation is. Um, and I think the metaphor there uh, is, you know, it really depends which side, which side of the war you're on, um, mm-hmm. because to some to some species, and this is borne out more in Voyager, but to some species, we're the Borg. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I don't remember what episode, but there's an episode of Voyager where they encounter a planet that is terrified of them. Um, because, uh, because they've been going through the Delta quadrant, killing everybody. And they, they, I mean, Janeway gave the order to basically destroy an entire dimension mm-hmm. in Scorpion, you know? Yeah. So depending on what side of the, uh, depending on what side of the phaser you're on, um, really affects your outlook and the Borg seem evil to us, but you know, there's a, I'm sure there's a world in which they evolved in and they, and they're, and they, they think, you know, they don't 
they don't, I think, wake up in the morning and think, oh, we're evil. They think that what they're doing is improving the universe. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> making it better, uh, cleansing people of uh, what they don't need, making them perfect, like in First Contact, um, mm-hmm. because they felt that everyone else was imperfect. So I thought that was interesting. Um, so, okay, with certain things about the show, I realized that the battle for Wolf 359 was the first time we saw a space cemetery, in a way, mm-hmm. like spaceship cemetery. You saw elements of ships that could have been used as, like, the Excelsior, or... Um, I think in my notes, I refer to it that they recomposited even the Enterprise on some sections of those ships that were found in that graveyard um, after that battle. And it was monumental in a way. Yeah, that's interesting that they used pieces of, uh, of old models and just different models to... Uh to make that, but it makes perfect sense, right? Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, I guess in theory there, maybe you know the name, but there's, there's another galaxy class starship. There's two. So the enterprise is a twin. Um, but every other oh, ship. In yeah. The fleet, yeah. Do, do you know what, do you remember what it's called? Uh, I, I don't, I don't remember either. Um, I don't remember. Um, I thought it was the hood. It might be I the thought hood. It was the USS hood. Well, the fandom will let us know. I hope, um, <laughs> but the, um, but the, but yeah. So, so in theory, you know, everything else, every other Federation ship is not a Galaxy class ship. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, it's interesting to see a graveyard with like the Defiant class and the Excelsior class. And it's also interesting that because the Excelsior class is, it, it's from another era. I mean, that, that's you know, Kirk commanded the first Excelsior class ship. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Enterprise B was an Excelsior class ship. Yeah. And then uh, so he commanded it, it briefly. Yeah, and then it showed up in uh, Star Trek VI with Sulu commanding. Right. Yeah. So that was actually the Excelsior, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He was on the Excelsior. So yeah, so it makes it makes sense that there that there were and that that was really interesting to see. Um, the the studio that uh, that did all that uh, was called Image G, um, and you can see it in the credits. And it, it was a uh, they were just a. a post-production modeling house and that's mm-hmm. that's what they did and I, I don't know if i told you this story on the last podcast but i actually got to visit image g when i was maybe 14 i came out here with my dad how cool who was uh, also a filmmaker and had done he was doing some work for nasa at the time and mm-hmm. so he used because we were star trek fans he used image g to do some like nasa stuff and we we went to do some images of the space station freedom which at that point did not exist um, now it's the International Space Station. Um, oh, nice. And so we went there, and I actually got to see the model of the Enterprise, uh, of the Enterprise B, one of them. There's several of them, but I got to see the sort mm-hmm. of mid-sized one, which is about three feet long, and they, uh, and they lit it up for me, and they showed me how they do the stars, which are just monofilament. With oh, nice. Filaments. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's, it's just amazing because it's, I mean, it's all analog. It was all, it was just literally guys moving models past cameras mm-hmm. um, it's amazing, but it looks so cool and you add the sound effects and it's um 
and I, I think I'm maybe minimizing it to say they're models. They were incredibly detailed models. Yeah. Um, like with to, to the point where like, like with people that would move back and forth in the windows, you know. Um, oh, that's cool. Yep. That's super cool. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but originally with the plot of the episode, it was supposed to be three parts mm-hmm. and that both uh, Picard and Data were supposed to be assimilated by the Borg. Huh. And then let me let me just let me guess uh, budget constraints. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I liked that um, Picard's name when he was given Locutus. Uh, it was like part Latin to where it says one who speaks. And it says eloquent to speak will come from it. And so it was Picard's effort to serve as their representative to facilitate the assimilation of the human civilization into the Borg. So I thought that was kind of cool because who else could you get that could be so eloquent in speaking <laughs> than Patrick Stewart, who is a, you know, British play actor and, you know, he's able to do all these uh, fantastic Shakespearean plays and, you know, he, he gets into Star Trek and uh, they have him be doing this, amazing you know almost sinister speech right at the end of the first part of best of both worlds yeah that's that's my favorite part about captain picard i think is that in addition to being a character that's written as a great leader he's just very clearly like the leader of that cast he's Mm -hmm. the most experienced he's he's the you know like he's the only one who I think really kind of didn't really need to be doing that show. He was, he already <laughs> had a great career in London um, doing stage acting, which is, that's a tough nut to crack and make a living, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, uh, and, and it's just, it's amazing to see him bringing those chops and really elevating every scene that he's in. Um, and, and I think that that dynamic also helped sell his leadership ability from a narrative perspective. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the things I noticed about this score is that uh, the score to Best of Both Worlds specifically is the Picard theme mm-hmm. seems to be like the uh, it seems to be sort of the harmony of the main theme of the Jerry Goldsmith theme with a slightly different melody. Like he was alluding to that to that um, to the Enterprise theme, but oh, that's really yeah. Picard, which is interesting because it, it's interesting that they would be one and the same. That you know Picard is the Enterprise and the Enterprise is him. I found that to but be that really is cool. Yeah, uh, and that's, that's and really epic with in the the Q Captain Borg. I think is where you sort of hear both of them together. Oh yeah, I guess you do. That that Q is kind of monumental in that way uh, because you hear. Do you hear the Alexander Courage or do you hear the Jerry Goldsmith? Well, kind the, of sort of the intro. So the, the sound of, so this is another thing that I learned from studying this episode is, um, and having watched thousands and thousands of hours of Star Trek, is that the, um, the, the sound of space in Star Trek is these open fifths in harmonics on the strings, which is a very pure sound. It's, uh, 
it's just a very pure resonant sound. So um, in the key of C, it would just be C, G, and then C an octave higher in, um, in, uh, in the strings, and then a solo or um, unison horn. And that is how okay. um, every, every Star Trek show theme song starts, is you, know, you see space and you hear these unison strings, and then you hear in, um, let's see, I, have, I wrote it down here. You hear in, um, in The Next Generation, it's a solo horn. In Voyager, um, uh, and in Deep Space Nine, it's a solo horn. And in Voyager, kind of interestingly, it's muted trumpets. Oh. Um, because, uh, you know, uh, and it's muted ensemble trumpets, which I think is interesting because Voyager is kind of, it's just a, it's in a different world. They're in a different yeah. place. And it's similar, but uh, even space sounds a little bit different where they are. Um, okay. But you can... You can see um, when you watch the score to Best of uh, Both Worlds that when they cut to sort of these space, these expanse shots, or when it's just the board cube, um, that's what you hear is these these strings and um, these these high strings and a solo horn, and that that horn is usually playing like the Picard theme or the Enterprise theme, um, and also just to just to throw Giacchino in the mix, the beginning of Star Trek of Michael Giacchino Star Trek is a French horn solo just playing oh, okay um nice so this is something that has really become the sound of star trek and it's um it's kind of the sound of opera too i mean this is a this is an operatic technique that the french horn represents the hero um mm -hmm. and that's something like with string pads and a solo instrument that usually plays as an ensemble instrument like a horn or a trumpet represents kind of vastness and loneliness oh yeah um, so here's the here's what i've considered it because Eric Woods and I had this discussion about the Enterprise almost being a character in itself. So these mm -hmm. different ships, the, the ship uh, or the station of Deep Space Nine, it's almost a character in itself uh, to show that these ships, these, these places, they have an element of character in the Star Trek universe. And you get a theme, more or less, for those ships. Sure. Yeah, they all have a theme. I would, I would say, I guess, I would revise and say that what I'm, what I was calling the space theme, might also be the Enterprise theme. But the, it really depends on the situation because there's the sort of, you know, the, the opening, the space, the final frontier mm -hmm. music. Um, but then the, you know, when when the Enterprise rushes in to save the day, they play the more triumphant theme. Also. Yeah. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, so that's that was interesting to me to um to look at, and I actually even mocked up on my computer here. I was just like, I because listening to it, I thought, oh, I th I'm pretty sure that's what that is, and then I just tried it on my on my rig, and and it, you know, it, it's instant Star Trek. Oh, you know, yeah. You play those those violin harmonics and a solo horn, and it's instant Star Trek. Hey, do you have that pulled up? Uh yeah, yeah. Hold on, let me. I can play it for you.
So you see, yeah, that's just yeah, it's that just work. that simple string voice. It's just that simple string voicing, and a solo horn playing the playing the melody. That's that's just that's really well done. It's amazing how that's kind of flushed out in so many different Star Trek series. Uh, mm-hmm. So getting back to Best of Both Worlds with um, Ron Jones and how he's really made the score somewhat like a masterpiece almost. There was there was an interview that he did, or well, it was Lucas Kendall. Mm-hmm. Um, he had talked about the score. He had talked about the CD and the the expanded score. Now, did you had had you any information in regard to? Is there? Do you think that the expanded score is? Uh, does it add anything, or do you think that we get uh, the best of it from just the regular score? No, I, I loved, I, and this is, I think this is true of all film music, is that it's not necessary, it's not written to sound, it's not written to be listened to by itself, it's written to be listened to with picture. So to hear the expanded version really did something for me. I really appreciated the music more for its own sake by listening to the album, which you should probably post a link to it because it's easily accessible on Apple Music. Um, oh, yeah. And I just listened to a little bit of it here. But um, but yeah, I found I found that to be. Uh, it was hard for me to analyze the music uh, again because Ron's stuff is so transparent. It's kind of hard to pick it apart in the picture. It just it just sort of works to the picture. But listening to listening to it um, by itself really um, taught me something. And honestly, I could have told you it was Ron without knowing because it had all of his hallmarks in it. Um, and it's uh, like if you think of like a dark episode of Family Guy, that's what it sounds like. Oh, okay. You know, it's got it's got those low brass hits in it, and one of the things that I one of the things that Ron told me um, when I was at a session is that whenever he makes these little hits and these little what those things, they're very intricate. They they sound very simple and they sound like just booms, but there's you know contrary motion going in every direction. There's flutes going down and horns going up, and all of it gives these hits this richness that really gives you an urgency to what's going on. Um, and that's, and that was all over the score and it's all, it's all over all of his work, but it's all over the score and it's particularly evident in the album. And yeah, there's so much, the, the Borg theme also is a little bit more prevalent in the album, I think, than it is even in the episodes. Yeah. Um, I, I, I really, when I saw the Borg, I, if you had asked me from just watching the episodes, what the Borg theme was, I would have told you that it was just high violins. It was oh. like a high violin texture. Because I couldn't really, he was very sneaky with the melody. And listening to it uh, as an album, I really heard it. And then watching the episodes again, you can, I could hear it. Maybe that's just my ears. Maybe it's more obvious to everyone else. No, I else. think that makes sense. But yeah, it's really, it was really epic. And also just the sound of the album. So this was recorded, to the best of my knowledge, and I, I can't confirm this 100%, but I believe it was recorded in Paramount Stage M. And I believe that they used a full, uh, I think probably 77-piece orchestra, um, as opposed to the normal 32 what, that they would do for, for a typical episode. And it really, it really sounds full. It sounds big. And um, he also used some choir elements, um, some sort of Ligeti-style oh, choir yeah. elements. Yeah. Um, and for, for those who don't know uh, Georg Ligeti's work, it's the, 
the color the color warp speed scene in 2001 okay. is uh, and, and and also the the monument scene is where you hear these voices just I won't imitate it here but just making sort of vocalese sounds and crescendoing and it's it's very it's a very disconcerting sound um, yeah because it's, it's per- not it's otherworldly mm-hmm. it has but it's also true. yes yeah i thought yes. that was um, that was really good too yeah it sounds completely alien but it's very uh but it's but it's you know there's nothing more human than the human voice uh and, and musically yeah and and even as we're talking about that, you know, when the Borg cube appears on screen, whether it's in a theater watching it at, uh, through a Fathom event or you're watching it uh, on your TV and you hear that uh, synth choir theme, you really sit up and you notice it of what it's doing. But it's, yeah, it's not it. bad. It's it's really good, you know. It calls your attention to what the music's doing, how how it's uh, adding to the story. Well, it's an ex- the exteriors of Star Trek are always where the composer shines because what you're actually seeing is a model. You know, you're just seeing a toy with yeah. a camera in front of it, and so it is the music that is telling you how to feel about that and how to pay attention to it and. You know, the board ship, it's very cool, but it's just a cube. And um, hearing that sound gives it this just ominous, ominous vibe. And just as an aside, I think the board cube is, it's genius. I just love the idea that, well, you know, wind resistance is not relevant. And <laughs> yeah. It's very easy to make a cube. So, yeah. Um, I, I love that. I, I love that idea. Um, but yeah, the, the, his, those textures, those textures that he's using, those vocal textures and those textures that he's using, the vocal textures and the dissonant string clusters are um, are sort of reminiscent of Indiana Jones and the, I think Temple of Doom was the most recent oh, okay. one. And that, yeah. that one, so that one, Temple of Doom had been nominated for an Oscar, I think two years before uh, Star Trek TNG came out. And so that would have been on the minds of the producers and the way that, the way that TV scoring typically works is that the the producers have an idea of a sound that they want. So it's, it's possible. And then they, then they go out to composers to see who can, you know, make it. And my guess would be that this is what they, what they had in mind was Temple of Doomish, And because that's what Ron delivered. And if it wasn't their idea, it was his idea, but either way it was, that sound was sort of in the zeitgeist at the time. And it makes sense because Star Trek is a space opera and it's in, it's in the tradition it's in the same tradition as Indiana Jones. It just takes place in space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so John Williams's take on that, I think was brilliant. And, uh, and it, it's almost a cliche, but done brilliantly. Um, so, so yeah, that, that was something that really stuck out to me. And the reason that Indiana Jones is fresh in my mind is that the Raiders of the Lost Ark March is my nine month old son's favorite song. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you so started Indiana good. Jones on my mind. you started Uh, him good you would you would make eric woods proud um so one of the things i found interesting according to my notes is that ron jones he doesn't do digital composing mm -hmm. like he'll write his notes with pen and paper and i think that's a really it's 
to many composers today, possibly yourself included, you use digital means, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone does. Nobody who's working at the professional level has handwriting scores unless they're Ron Jones or John Williams' age. Or it's just, it's just John Powell. <laughs> no, John Powell can mock something up as, as good oh, okay. as anybody. Um, All right. And, uh, you know, it's better he have, than most. Doesn't he handwrite his stuff or does he do it just purely on computer? I'm not sure. I, I'm really not sure how John works, but I'm certain that John delivers demos. Okay. So whether he handwrites them and someone else makes them into digital demos or whether, you know, he makes them the demos himself, I'm 100% certain he delivers demos. <laughs> Yeah. So, there's, but with and, John and, Williams and Ron Jones, they're definitely in that school of handwriting. I think Ron, I think Ron did probably for Family Guy do demos, um, just okay. because I, I don't think he did them himself, and he might have conceived the music by handwriting it, and that might be how John Powell works. But also, John Powell worked at Remote Control, which is Hans Zimmer's studio, and Remote Control is about making good demos. Mm-hmm. So. Whether or not John currently does make demos, I know that he knows how to. The process does equal product to some degree. You know, mm-hmm. there is something that you get out of writing something by hand. It's just an issue of fluidity. Um, I'm as fluid writing on a computer as I would be by hand. And I don't know, I don't know if anyone, it's, it's not really possible to keep up with the pace of modern television mm-hmm. doing it. By, because even if you are recording, you're, you have two weeks to do it. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, the only, so if you're writing it by hand, you can't be controlling all the details yourself. Yeah. Um, and what they usually, what they mean, like what John Williams does, what Jerry Goldsmith did, what uh, probably Ron Jones did um, when they write it by hand, they're not writing in all the orchestration. They're writing an eight line sketch. Mm-hmm. So it's just wood, brass, strings, percussion, and, you know, whatever, whatever else. So they're writing this eight line sketch and then an orchestrator is fleshing that out into orchestral mm-hmm. like, and that's very similar to what it's pretty much the exact same process that um myself or or mark isham or probably alan sylvester uses which is um or alan menken which is you you write it to sound good as a demo and then an orchestrator takes that and writes it and makes it work as, as a orchestral music on the page yeah so as the composer you're controlling all of the elements you're inventing the sound you're um, deciding what melodies go where, and you're uh, and, and you're do, you're doing everything, but um, but yeah, it's it's always been a team of people that brings it to the stage and makes it come alive, because you can't uh, you know you can't as a composer do it all yourself. Mm-hmm. It's just there's just not there's just not time. Yeah, um, yeah. This episode was one of probably one of the highlights that he was able to do for Star Trek. I mean, there were several other episodes that. Uh, stood out, say, the high ground, or I can't think of one off the top of my head. But that is another score uh, of a TV episode that he was able to to utilize and flush out very thoroughly, uh, just like Best of Both Worlds, and how we get such a cinematic feel to this one episode, or this <laughs> two-part episode. <laughs> Yeah, I think the, I mean, you know, a 70 piece orchestra will help you have a cinematic feel kind of no matter what you write. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, it, it is true that a 70 piece orchestra in the hand of an amateur is not going to sound as good as a 70 piece orchestra in the hand of John Williams. You know, it's also, uh, you know, when you have that many players 
of that quality because this was recorded in LA and I'm sure it was done union, which means it was the best players in the world and mm-hmm. um, some of them. And when you have players of that quality, I've been, I've been lucky enough to work with some of these people when they just tune up, it sounds amazing. You know, when they put their fingers on their instruments, it sounds amazing. And what they're playing and they are going to make what you write sound good, no matter what, that is their job. So um, when you bring something to a player of that caliber that is great music, they may, or that is good music, they make it great. And if it's great music, they make it transcendent. And so Ron Jones is a composer who's able to consistently deliver great music. When you give him the, the resources and you give him the musicians to bring it alive, the result is always going to be fantastic. But that's true of a lot of composers in Hollywood. Um, that's true of, uh, let's say, Bear McCreary, who I know does digital demos. Um, that's true of uh, Ludwig Gornson. I mean, just any of my colleagues, friends, and uh, you know, other composers in Hollywood. This is this is how we work, and it's always it's always a team effort, with the exception of maybe Jeff Beal, who I believe does actually do every single thing himself. Um, but he's an, um, there's video of Jeff Beal running Pro Tools while he's conducting. Um, oh, wow. But, um, you know, but, uh, but for, for most, for most people, and I mean, I'll just speak certainly for myself is it's always a team effort when you go, uh, to the recording studio, um, because there's someone who's an engineer who's deciding what mics go there. There's assistants who have placed everything in the right place. And there's also 32 or 64 or 77 musicians who are all part of the process. So none of it is all me. None of it is all, um, Ron Jones. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's all of us. It takes a village. As far as creativity, I think uh, if you're if you're someone who grew up in the era of um, handwriting scores and bringing an eight line sketch to an orchestrator, that's probably the thing you're most comfortable doing. Um, for me, the thing I'm most comfortable doing is mocking something up and then bringing it to an orchestrator. And I would submit that it's the same process. What I'm doing is getting my musical idea onto a means that can be shared with other musicians. And then getting that idea fleshed out for a full orchestra. So, um, you know, Ron probably doesn't do demos because he's not as fluent in logic as I am or digital performer. Um, Uh And I'm not as fluent with pen and paper as he is. But that's because we came up using different tools. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of the key moments that really stand out to me in the score is the actual piece of music that is used when... Picard is on the screen as a Borg and he's on the view screen looking at Riker and you get that cliffhanger note that Ron Jones uses to impact the almost finality of that episode. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you agree? That it's, yeah, it's just uh... so it's like it gives you chills. It's like Dun, dun, dun. It's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, and I wonder, you know, I have to, I'd have to listen to it again, but I wonder if that ends on a, on a tonic, or if it ends on a five chord, because you, you would, you would want to end it on a. There's sort of two ways to do it. There's a, um, you could end it on a, on a note that's expecting to be resolved, mm-hmm. or it might be a little bit scarier to end it on a tonic, because it's like, nope, this is the world now, and uh, I, I know that that. Uh, yeah, that, that, I'll, I'll have to listen to that and see which one he does. But, you know, it's really amazing what you can do with a full orchestra getting 
big like that and loud. You know, you can oh, really yeah. just an emotional sound. And that's what I love about the score uh, for this particular two-part episode is that there's so many elements of it. As you know, both of, both you and I have have watched the episode probably multiple times because that's what I've been doing. <laughs> and then listening to the score, I had it. I I work at a, a senior living community, and I've been playing it in the van that I I drive. And mm-hmm. so people wonder what is that music? I'm like, oh, it's, it's Star Trek, and I just <laughs> call it at that. Because they won't know, but it's like I've been really appreciating that score and how, you know, you've got one of the things I'd like to examine is some of these cues Mm -hmm. that are very fundamental to the score itself and how it really develops even part of the story. And so the first set of cues that I want to discuss is New Providence. Hansen's message, Borg engage, first attack, and uh, Borg take Picard, and then even Captain Borg. Lucas, what are your thoughts and impressions on this? These pieces of music. Well, that's I a think, lot to contain. There's a lot to contain. Um, so I'll start with what I think is uh, makes film music great. Um, TV music, in this case, and. That is that it is uh, enjoyable and uh, studyable and um, deep on three levels. And the three levels are you can just listen to it and it sounds cool. So the casual listen, l- listener will listen to it and will enjoy it. Uh, the second level is that if you analyze it as a musician, it's interesting. It has uh, depth, it has structure, and, um, and it makes sense and is re- rewards uh, study. And the third level is that it um, serves the story. So... Uh, Ron Jones is one of the rare composers who's really everything he does um, hits those three levels um, very, very strongly, very deeply. And uh, and that's one of the things that's really prominent in this episode in particular is um, when you when we first listen to it, one of the first things that we're going to hear in the New Providence queue is the Borg theme. And that happens when they see the when they see the crater and you hear just it's, it's sort of a synth and maybe a horn underneath it plays that. Da, 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 da. And what will be a fun listening exercise for anyone listening to all of these, to listening to this suite at the same time, is just try to spot every time you hear that cue, because every time you hear that little melody, because you'll hear it in the synths, you'll hear it in the strings, you'll hear it in the horns, you'll hear it inverted in different instruments, you'll hear it just sort of snuck in on the harp. Um, he really, he's a very thematic composer, and he really peppers it in all over these several is cues. It, it's really interesting. Is it, is it like a motif? It's absolutely a, a light motif for the board. Okay. All right, cool. That's super cool. I like how so, the, uh, the first three connect, like, you know, with New Providence, Hansen's Message, and Borg Engaged. Those three seem to connect to make one solid cue in a way. Yeah, they, they do. They, and then musically, they, they make sense together. It's a and I don't know if that's if he made them into a suite after the fact, or or if they are they're just like that. Um, but one of the uh, one of the other interesting things to listen to in this in this suite is the um, the so I think we discussed before the Star Trekiness of mm-hmm. it that the whole thing has these open voicings in the high strings, 
all the way through it. Every cue in the whole episode, probably every cue in the entire show. Um, <laughs> and and so that gives you this very Star Trek vibe. And that's, that's a sound that I think Alexander Courage really pioneered. John Williams a little bit too with Lost in Space. And, you know, it's just sort of what we've colloquially come to think of as a sound of space. Um, but what, uh, what Ron adds to that that's special is these beautiful string clusters, these beautiful horn clusters, and a really judicious and effective use of synthesizers. Um, it's rare, especially in this period and even today, to hear synthesizers and orchestra blended where they both where it sounds very natural. It doesn't sound like one is overtaking the other. Uh, you don't have a score where there's orchestral things and then there's synth things. It's really just mixed together beautifully well. Like it's almost uh, the synth moments where they're playing melodies sound almost like a concerto to me. Like the orchestra is um, supporting this synth melody and it's just like another instrument and it like should have always been there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really a cool way to look at it because some of the cues are very, it almost feels like it is very cinematic. And it, like, to me, the synth and the orchestra, you know, really blend well. Like, it, it, it's like a cohesive element. Like, it just meshes together. Right. And so that's what makes it work on the first dimension that I discussed, right? Where uh, if you just listen to it, it sounds like good music. Now, if you were to, you could do a less artful blending of synths and orchestra, and it would work very well on the third level of telling the story of being in space where there's sort of nature surrounding you and that can be the orchestra, but you're on this man-made synthetic object and that's the ship. And you could make a score work with those two elements, but it might not be music that you would want to listen to. And really, I think the accomplishment here is making it work on all three of those levels and Ron is just a master at that. Um, another thing to pay attention to, uh, another light motif is there's a horn melody that occurs and it's, it's usually accompanied by a, like a key change and a, um, and a little bit of a modulation and that's uh, the enterprise theme. So okay. there, yeah. there is, as far as I know, no official sanctioned enterprise light motif, but what it seems to be <laughs> in the show is like a definite strong horn melody in the French horn and uh, low in the, in that really meaty range of the French horn. And, uh, and he definitely employs that quite a bit and I, I you can listening to it you can almost see like the pan to the board cube you know you 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 know exactly what's happening just from hearing that even you know one of the the cues that you were actually it seemed like you were really excited to talk about were was captain borg now why is that so exciting for you so what i wanted to say about captain borg and the reason that i suggested it is because it's really a great example of an action cue. And there are two, there are really two schools of thoughts to writing action cues. One of them is that you keep the form going kind of no matter what. You keep the form going no matter what. You keep, you know, you have even phrases, you make it like a song, so it really drives the action forward. And that approach is preferred by uh, Mark Isham and other people. It's, it's a great approach. The other approach um, is that you, have the energy driving nonstop, relentlessly, but you could never tap your foot to it. It, mm -hmm. it doesn't give you anywhere to land. And I challenge any listener to try to count their way through this queue. Yeah. It is 
in, um, I mean, it's mostly in 6-8 and 4-4 and 2-4, but there are random bars of random beats that <laughs> yeah. are there to get picture. Um, but what, what Ron does is, uh, and I, I do this in my own work too, which is you sort of pick a tempo where you're going to be able to hit everything on a beat, but it's not necessarily going to be a downbeat. And then you get these really interesting turns of phrase where you have to back a melody into switching on a on a on an odd beat um, or to landing on an odd beat. So Ron is using here the technique of never being able to tap your foot, never being able to hang your hat. But the interesting, but what he's doing that's drawing you in is you can hear the illusions like right. I think it was right around 51 seconds. You can hear this sort of hint of the Borg theme. And then uh, a little bit later, um, sort of in the one minute, 20 second range, you hear very definitely the Star Trek theme, which, uh, which Ron uses often as a Picard theme. Mm-hmm. And so you hear the sound of this Borg. Uh, the, the Borg sound that he's using is this sort of synthesized choir, which makes sense because that's kind of what they are, right? Mm-hmm. When they talk. Um, and you hear the synthesized choir pad and the Star Trek theme, the Picard theme, and that really is musically telling you there's something wrong with the captain. Yeah, um, agreed. No, that, uh, that's, I, I think, I just think it's an interesting cue because it has so many of the light motifs in it. It has so many of the, um, it has so many of the techniques that make Ron's music really interesting in it. And it has so much Star Trekiness in it that I just find it to be really interesting. Oh yeah. And uh, one thing that I have appreciated about it is that it's, it actually changed the formula of Star Trek forever. Like, from that point, you know, having that cliffhanger in a Star Trek TV show, it really changed how Star Trek was viewed, uh, that there was more at stake, <laughs> that it wasn't just a one-and-done episode. Yeah, it's the kind of cue that you would hear in, in an action film. It's, it was, it's really more intense than what came before it in that episode. That actually... Is, I remember we were talking about this, and now I've answered it definitively. So the way that this ends, it's this beautiful scale-wise build to these super intense hits where everyone in the orchestra is playing the loudest, meatiest part of their instrument at triple forte, um, dot, 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 just hammering it as hard as possible. And then the ending is um, a big held chord with a whole tone harp glissando, which... Um, kind of tells you that more is coming, but then it ends on a very definite downbeat. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so it really, that could have been the end. Mm-hmm. That really could have been, it could have just been, well, the Enterprise doesn't have Picard anymore, so now we're going to do a different show. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and that's, as we discussed, it, that's because they actually thought that that might, that might be the case. They didn't mm-hmm. know yeah. when they were doing that. So I love that um, that Ron ended it that way. He really ended it on a definite note, but um, made sure to lead up to that anticipation with just so much intensity that that you're left, you know, when the commercial hits, you're still feeling the adrenaline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we'll play those cues.
right, so next, what I'd like to play is Energy Weapon Fails, um, Humanity Taken, Cemetery of Dead Ships, and Intervention. Uh, what I appreciate about it is how Ron really draws you in. And he really shows us the cemetery of the dead ships through music. And it's pretty epic in nature. What, what are your thoughts on this, Lucas? Let me start first with energy weapon fails. Uh, so it starts with, I think, a smaller palette than we ended with in Captain Borg. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I loved about this cue is it builds up around somewhere in the middle, right around like 120 it gives you that same scale-wise build that we closed the last episode with. It's the exact same, um, it's the exact same notes as uh, the end of Captain Borg. Um, but then, and that's, I think, building up to firing the weapon, and then it just dies. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it just it goes back to um, just the, the space sound that we talked about, the open strings and uh, just the timpani. Um, and as we get further into the queue, the queue starts, like I said, with a, as a, with a different palette, and it starts with no synths. But as we, um, as we get further into the queue, as it becomes obvious that this is that the Borg are, are, are that we are no match for the Borg, mm-hmm. the synths start to take over, and the Borg sound starts to take over. Um, and yeah, I, I found I found that to be interesting. And he plays with the the Borg theme. If you listen to how it's developed, there's hints of it around a minute and a half. By the end, it's it's really fully stated, and that's that. that I think that's a, just a great way of describing the battle. Yeah, I would have to completely agree because it's it's explosive, it's exciting, but then you realize, oh man, that's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a good idea, you know. So if I do, I remember correctly that they try. It was something with the deflector dish, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's always. I feel like that's always the hail mary pass for the Enterprise. <laughs> yeah, they're all. You know, this doesn't work. This what? Can we do something with the deflector dish? Maybe. Yeah. Well, they did it in First Contact. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm telling you, I think that that is like every time that they're that they don't know what to do, that's the go to, and it works like fifty percent of the time. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's a good narrative tool because because um, since it works sometimes. As a fan, as a longtime fan, you actually don't know. You know, you're like, oh, oh, yeah, the deflector dish. Oh, yeah, that's gonna work. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is an interesting one. What what did you like about this one? About humanity taking it to me, it's it's like a it kind of hints at like the the synth synth chords really shine in it, kind of, but then you have those overall like orchestral feelings toward it. But uh, I've always felt it really incorporates into the scene of how Picard has like fully become Borg. He's no longer human. And, um, and the enterprise is realizing that the uh, Riker and uh, Shelby and, uh, data they're all realizing that we may never get him back yeah uh no no horns mm-hmm. sorry I'm, mis- I'm mistaken there are horns but they're playing the horns and the strings and the low strings are playing these like pendereski-esque clusters they're totally 
confused, non-melodic, non-rhythmic. Um, and the whole cue is like that. It's, it's very, it's very atonal and chaotic. But the only, it's chaotic, but the only thing that really is making sense and is coherent is those synth chords, that synth board choir. And, um, you can hear the, the interval, like the, da, da, the sort of the beginning of the board theme. It doesn't quite realize. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, and, and it has, you'll hear the, um, the space sound that we've been talking about. It's, Mm-hmm. just those open top strings but it's a really interesting cue it's almost it's interesting because this to me is isn't really a cue outside of the context of the rest of the music yeah yeah Agreed. You know, uh, but it really as far as as far as storytelling it's saying to me space and the borg and the horns which usually represent our heroes are just completely confused and are just disorganized and can't even string a melody together mm-hmm. so yeah, I think that's that's interesting. That's a perfect title for that too. For that, uh, for that. Yeah, too. exactly. Um, then there's uh, the cemetery of dead ships and intervention. I mean, those are two separate cues, but uh, I think they they almost clash in a way because you have one side of it that has the realization of what Picard as Lacutus aboard has been able to do because of his knowledge as a human and as a starship captain, but then the Enterprise's plan to intervene, to get him back yeah. with intervention. Let me ask a, a silly question. I don't actually remember if this is addressed in the episode, but doesn't Picard, Locutus, doesn't he have command codes to all these ships? Doesn't uh, the board just be able to turn them off? I don't know. I don't know if they have that ability. I mean, he I definitely mean, has one for the Enterprise. Well, yeah, yeah. But whether he remembers it or not, or maybe suppresses it, I don't know. Yeah, or they, may, they might have. It could have been a plot device. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, to, to, to quote Alfred Hitchcock, so someone once asked, you know, why didn't she just call the police? And he said, because then there would be no movie. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just, I remember that was a, um, that was a plot point in, I think it was the motion picture. Mm-hmm. That's how they, um, they got command of, uh, of one of the ships. As they, they knew well, the that was in so. Star Trek 2. That was 2. That was Wrath of Khan, right? Yeah. Yeah. It all goes back to Wrath of Khan. <laughs> it does. It really does. Cemetery of Dead Ships is a really great example of expressing abject terror in the hearts mm-hmm. of your protagonist. Yeah. Um, it starts with that uh, flute ostinato, which is always a sign in Star Trek. The woodwind ostinato is a sign of bad alien behavior. That mm-hmm. is, you're going into a strange world and something, and it's threatened. And, um, and then it moves to this beautiful horn solo that is it's really the kind of thing you would hear at a funeral and it's a it's a low french horn and it's playing a melody just by itself and you can't hear this in the television show but you can hear it listening to it on on uh, solid headphones or probably even earbuds you can hear the orchestra sitting there mm-hmm. and that gives it this extra layer of um of loneliness that you can hear that this musician is playing in a room full of 60 people who are dead silent. And that, <laughs> yeah. I always find that really eerie. Um, and then 
what Ron does, which is really beautiful, is what you expect in Star Trek is if you hear a solo French horn, and Giacchino does this at the beginning of the first of his movies, you hear a solo French horn, you expect to hear the big open Star Trek chord. And what he does is bring in the orchestra, but they're playing this really tight voicing that makes that just makes it more uncomfortable and it makes mm-hmm. it more intimate. The, the action and the, the, the emotion is happening in the minds of the characters that are looking at this scene and it's not happening in space. And then the, the synths kick in. The, uh, the, the synths, I guess, are there the whole time, but they really start to, he starts to use that low analog square wave synth, which is really, really cool. Um, n- near the end, I, I forgot to mention this Star Trek trope, but the chords and then the eighth note um, timpani. That's, mm-hmm. that's like pretty much the bad guy theme in Star Trek. That's boom, boom. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's the generic bad guy theme. And mm-hmm. So that comes in. And then at the end, uh, the astute listener will have noticed the, um, the board theme being fully realized in the horns, which mm-hmm. is uh, terrifying because through this cue, the horns are, you know, the horns do this sad sort of funeral march. The solo horn does this funeral march. And then they kind of start to pull it together. And what they manage to pull together is to play the Borg's theme, which is really, to me, just is the, the sign of the crew's just defeat. Like all they can think of to do is say, well, I guess resistance is futile because we've, you know, they've just destroyed our armada. What are, where are we going to go from here? <laughs> yeah. And that was a great, uh, great cue to pick, by the way. That was a really good one. Oh, yeah. And with intervention, I, I mean, I just want to touch on this cue very briefly because uh, it's a four minute cue and or four minutes, 24 seconds. And the thing about it that really gets me, though, is that Riker, Tata and Worf really go at it to get Picard back and they have a plan. And Shelby, she's kind of involved in that plan, but she's not the major part of that plan because she has different, I don't know, different, a different impact or a different feeling toward the whole situation. Yeah. Um, so I, I, do we, does Shelby have a theme? I don't remember. I don't know. I, I don't think so. Cause there's no cue that actually has, I don't know, maybe not. Yeah, I don't think so. But yeah, I mean, uh, just touching on that just briefly is, you know, really, it's an impactful scene of the, it's a, it's a high intense action piece of music um, for them to go and grab Picard and kind of like trick the Borg into attacking something else that's not there. Like, don't they use like, I mean, it would almost essentially be like, fireworks you know they use these flares or something to get their attention somewhere else and they use the saucer section i think to get them distracted well because it's a season finale they're contractually obligated to separate the saucer section yeah um and so so yeah they use this they try to they try to um i'm not mistaken they sort of double trick them because Riker does this and knows that Picard will know that it's a distraction and to ignore it. But it turns out that's not the distraction, that's the main attack. And mm-hmm. this, for me, foreshadows one of my favorite scenes in um, the, uh, is it insurrection? Not insurrection, in uh, 
What's the What's the final next generation movie? Nemesis. Nemesis. Yeah, the one with um with um Hardy. With that. <laughs> Not Ed Hardy. B four. <laughs> no, the, the one who, who's the who plays the bat? Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the one with Tom Hardy where where they're you know where they're lined up and in, and the Enterprise is facing down Tom Hardy's you know intensely intimidating bad guy Reeman ship. And he gives this whole speech to Picard about how you can't outsmart me. I know everything you're going to do. I know everything you think. I know every strategy that you've ever come up with. And there's no way you can beat me. And Picard goes, ram him. Yep. Um, and, and this, to me, kind of foreshadows that scene where Picard, that, that foreshadows that moment because Picard is now in that position where he knows everything that the Enterprise is going to do. And I've got to think that in Nemesis, in that moment, he thought, what, when I was little cutest, what would I have not expected? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. And it really changed the course of what happened in that movie. Yeah. I mean, it was the decisive maneuver. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting. I love the, love that. I just love that kind of drama, that style of writing where, you know, the thing that works is just the stupidest, simplest thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Picard invented a maneuver that makes his ship appear to be in multiple locations at the same time. Mm-hmm. But that was not useful. What was useful was just ram him. You know, you know what? This is what, what a Roman general would have done 4,000 years before this took place. <laughs> so, uh, so what we'll do now is play these cues.
So sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. Lastly today, what I'd like to discuss is the last cues of this second part of the episode, which is the Link, Sleep Command, Destruct Mode Picard, or Destruct Mode Picard is back. Like, that's a two-part section on the queue, like Destruct Mode, and then Picard is back, and then Picard's Nightmare, and then, of course, we have the ending credits of the episode. Um, what are your thoughts for the final part of this episode? Well, or, I think... you know, of the, the, you know, this best of both worlds, you know, getting the connection of that link and everything culminating after that. Well, I think like a, like a great composer and like a great storyteller, Ron, everything that happens is, is set up, you know, and I don't think that there's, there's going to be anything new. I think that the listener who's been listening to us talk about this stuff up till now is going to catch everything <laughs> in these next sections, except for one thing that I noticed that I was unable to verify because I don't have the score to this episode. But in the sleep command queue, the chord voices that he used are very reminiscent of Tchaikovsky to me. And oh, I okay. think that he might be from Sleeping Beauty, um, which would be entirely within the realm of Ron Jones' possibility that, you know, that that is the way his mind works, I think. And, and he is undoubtedly extremely aware of everything Tchaikovsky has ever written. So, um, and, and it might, so that, that might be conscious. It might also be subconscious. But when they're, um, I think it's right at the moment where they're initiating that plan, um, or when they're on the ship and the board are sleeping, you hear these chord voicings that are, are really uncharacteristic of Star Trek, but evoke sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was really interesting, and I thought that was a, just a great way to, to um, signal that to the audience. But yeah, they're, uh, the, it's, it's an amazing set of cues. It's an amazing score to, a, to an amazing episode. And yeah. I was really glad to get the chance to watch it and listen to it all again. Yeah. And one of the cues that I really found unique is Picard's nightmare. Because mm. it doesn't it doesn't show you in the episode a, a nightmare that he has or, you know, it, it's it's more of an like you're looking at him as having this inner feelings on his after effects uh you know picard has these after effects of being a part of that collective and he's sitting in his away room or his ready room and he's got the the scarring on his face and you know he's got those patches on his skate face and he's just looking out the window and the music really shows us the impact of what just happened to him. And I think we get that too with um, First Contact, the movie, you know, because we, we see kind of the similarities of what those nightmarish things are like for him, uh, even to the point with the Enterprise E, you know? Yeah, in First Contact, I, th- I think it starts with him having that nightmare, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and you know, can you imagine the, the the medicine has not and the terminology has not yet been devised for what the psychological damage of being assimilated to the <laughs> yeah. board could possibly be. Um, 
And so, yeah, I think that's uh, that, that's a it's an interesting. And this is one of the reasons that I think Star Trek is so beloved is that they they didn't go as far as Game of Thrones later in just murdering people, but really tortured those characters. Yeah, you know, and there, there, no punches were pulled. And there are there are moments where there are episodes where the character doesn't die, but you just you have to assume that they wish they had. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know, Picard recovers, obviously, but I can't imagine what what the next couple of months of his life were like. Well, yeah, um, and then you almost feel like Best of Both Worlds is two parts of a third parts episode because you get the after effects which is i don't know if it's called aftermath or no it's called family i think it's called family correct uh hold on i actually have it here um okay oh, go go ahead oh yeah um the go go ahead to say what you were gonna say well because family takes place almost exactly right after the ending to the best of both worlds. And it's to where Picard has to take this time to recover from the events that he's experienced. And so he goes back home. Right. I was thinking of a different, I was thinking of just the next. So I, I actually look at it as a a three part series. The third part being I Borg. Oh, okay. Um, Because even though that's the, you know, it's two seasons later, it's like, when they encounter the Borg, it's like Picard, it's like the whole look Judas thing was yesterday for mm-hmm. him. And he's, you know, he's such an even-handed, fair, you know, he's, he's the, the person that you want in a high-pressure situation. And when he encounters the Borg, he becomes like a rabid dog. He just wants to kill him. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, and his whole fight of suppressing that impulse while Starfleet is trying to encourage it. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I don't they it's not right for us to destroy this species. It's, it's not right. It's, it's not who we are. Um, but the, uh, but yeah, but, the, but Starfleet was like, no, do it. You should do it. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's like, uh, that's a wrong course to take. So, yeah. um, but do you have any, any, uh, any thoughts on that cue or, or how, how even uh, I mean not necessarily the music but how the episode is impacted with the that third episode that we you know we're not going to talk about here but um you know how that affects Picard in the show this would be a thing to study but it would be interesting to see if Picard's theme changes after this episode that's a good good question with Picard is is different. And I, I, you know, knowing Ron's work, I, I would not be surprised if he was that clever. Um, it's also, it also might be a very subtle change, you know, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, I, I think this episode really was, I think it was the first really big, I think it was the first episode where they really put more money into it than usual and really mm-hmm. just let it sort of stand on its own. And, um, and just really ran wild with it. And I think that changed the way that it made Star Trek, I think, a little bit more serious. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, if you look at the, the first, I mean, if you look at the track of progression from, you know, the, the menagerie, the first episode of the, of 
um, or, or the, the, the pilot, I'm sorry about the glass, the menagerie, the mm-hmm. pilot, yeah. with Captain Pike, all the way through, um, all the way through uh, Discovery, it's, it's just this slow, steady march toward becoming this really dark drama, you know, yeah. and, and this episode, th- these episodes were right in the middle of it, because the first couple of seasons of Star Trek were intense, but they were filled with a lot of what I call woodwind episodes, which is mm-hmm. where they start with woodwinds and it's kind of plucky comedy and the occasional laser beam. Um, yeah. But uh, but after this, it just starts to get a little bit more intense to the point where the finale of The Next Generation is Picard literally having to um, defend the existence of life. Yeah. Much. And the stakes are the stakes are nothing short of extinguishing life in the galaxy. Yeah. And and the and and from from there the you know Deep Space Nine is pretty dark. Voyager is has its moments of plucky comedy, but is ultimately really it's sort of like like I think I've said this before, but if you imagine what Captain Cook's voyage around the world was like from the perspective of the people who he encountered, <laughs> so they're like, who is this? Who is this person? And then also they would leave, and then all these people that he visited got malaria and diseases they'd never had before. And yeah. and uh, in that way, Voyager was always really dark to me. Even as a kid, I thought it was like there was something about it that was just not okay. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then we don't talk about Enterprise, right? And then nope. Discovery is really Discovery is really dark. Yeah. Um, you know, the first I I, I don't want to spoil anyone. Okay, so uh, earmuffs. If anyone hasn't watched Discovery for the next like three seconds, but most <laughs> of the first season takes place in the alternate timeline established in Enterprise, where humans are evil. It's the Terran Empire. Um, <laughs> it doesn't really get darker than that in Star Trek. So yeah, agreed. So so Lucas, where can people find you? I am available um, at Lucas D Cantor on both Instagram and Twitter. Uh, and if you want to actually connect with me, you can go to my website, which is Lucas Cantor Music, and my email address and phone number are there, or I guess the contact link and my phone number. Mm-hmm. And if anyone wants to talk about Star Trek, just hit me up. I'm yeah. way less responsible to social media than I am to email. So you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Soundtrack Alley. Um, my website is SoundtrackAlley.com, and my email is SoundtrackAlley at gmail.com. And you can find the show through Mixcloud and Anchor FM, Anchor.fm. Because um, it's, it's in the process of putting it through iTunes and Spotify. Um, it just hasn't been established yet. <laughs> so I'm getting there. I'm getting there. But um, good for them. We're going we're gonna to get them. They're going to get used. You know, we'll get them to come around eventually. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Um, I, I'm I'm not on Podbean anymore because uh, it was costing me too much. So, <laughs> but uh, that's another story. Um, any last thoughts, Lucas, on this episode or things about Star Trek? I think that we pretty much covered everything I know All about right. Star Trek. <laughs> that's good. All right. Well, until next time, we'll play these last cues. And happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. I hope you've enjoyed it, and if you're on iTunes, please rate and review the show. It really helps Soundtrack Alley Spotlight get noticed. Thanks.